want to talk to you about something that's it's much more um, teaching oriented than exhortation this morning. I, I feel I'm prompted to, to do this. I, I, I do have a couple of concerns, and I, I, sometimes I like to share, like, you know, singers like to share, songwriters like to share the context of why they wrote the song. And I oftentimes feel like teaching isn't really complete unless you understand what brought about this, these thoughts. And I, I, I have some deep concerns about truth, about the Bible, about the way we relate to the Bible, and about the way we receive from the Bible, and, um, and about the way we apply the Bible. And I, frankly, I have concerns about the value that we don't have for the Bible in much of our movement, and I'm talking about our own movement, that some of us have lost, we're so into experience that we've lost sight of the foundation of experience actually is founded in the, in the Bible. And, um, and I read the Bible every day, and I have for um, nearly 35 or 36 years. I, I may have missed, I probably missed 100 days of reading the Bible, fell asleep or something before, but but I mean, I really have a deep, deep love for the Bible. I, I really do. And I, and I, I pray often um, before I read, Holy Spirit, show me, help me to understand. And I, I often read the Bible and feel like it's a closed book even to me. And I, I, feel like you, I feel like there are depths of the Bible that we don't even understand without the Holy Spirit. I feel like the Holy Spirit's our tutor to lead us into truth. And, and um, I hope you can receive this in the way I mean it. I, I, I see the Bible as a hologram. Remember, and you know what a hologram is? Does anyone not know what a hologram is? Hologram is like, it looks like a, a regular picture, right? The first time I ever saw a hologram, it freaked me out. Somebody said, hey, have you ever, see this? It's a hologram. I said, what's a hologram? They said, well, it's a picture inside of a picture. I'm, I couldn't figure out what they meant. And he goes, well, just stare at that, stare at this picture. And it was just a picture of kind of a, a landscape and I was uh, actually we were at Disneyland and it was this pretty pretty large picture like four by six pretty large so I was standing in front of it and I'm like yeah he goes what do you see I said I see mountains and trees and he goes no no you got to look you got to look deeper <laughs> look deeper those of us who've seen a hologram you know what I'm talking about right look deeper so I'm like <laughs> I'm looking deeper I, I don't know how long I stared at it it seemed like a long time he kept saying did you get it do you get it what do you see and so I'm staring at him and go, I just see, and, and so I thought maybe he was talking about like I needed to like be more detailed about my description. And then all of a sudden I'm staring at it and behind, in the midst of the picture, a whole other picture emerged. Uh, do you guys, how many of you have seen a hologram, first of all? How many of you remember the first time you saw a hologram and another picture completely jumped out of the picture? Was it weird? Did your brain do, I don't know if it, like my brain freaked out. My brain was trying to process, like, how did that happen, and why did that, what just happened to us? And I oftentimes feel like the Bible's like that. Like, there's the Word, and then there's the Word. That just sometimes, have you ever read a verse, like, maybe it's one of your favorite verses, and you've read it hundreds of times, and you're reading it, and all of a sudden, just like, something just pops out at you, all of a sudden. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? And Bill Johnson, you know, I've been with Bill, Kathy and I, 34 years or 35 years. And Bill does that all the time. Like, he'll read a verse. I've read that verse 10,000 times. And he'll start teaching on this verse. And I'm like, where did he get that? How did, 
how does he know that verse says that? And I'll read it and I'm like, that's exactly what it says. And people will always say, will say Bill Johnson says, and I'll be like, no, no, it's Jesus Christ. <laughs> you ever notice that on Facebook? They'll say, Bill Johnson says, and they'll quote verbatim, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so it's like, no, no, it's just the way he said it that made you get it. But it's actually word for word, verbatim, what the Bible said. He just says it and you're like, oh, it's amazing. So this morning, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I won't have time to do, this is about a four-hour teaching. I've done it with my, I've shared this teaching with my students in four sessions. So I'm just going to give you some of it today. But I actually want to talk about the Word of God. And, and it's, the message is called The Truth About Truth, and it's about 22 pages of notes. And if you, would, or if you actually want it, if you actually like the teaching, you can get on my website for free and download the notes. I just text my secretary and she's going to put it on the website will be there tonight so um there's so many pages in the notes but um jesus began by he by saying man cannot live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of god this is uh, matthew 4 how many of you know that it's not the preceding word but the proceeding word that's life to you and i've shared this many times it's not what God said, but what God's saying. And let me just put it simply. What God said tells you how God thinks. What God's saying tells you what God's thinking. So what God said is important because it tells us how God thinks. So when we read, for instance, Old Testament, uh, as an example, people are like, I don't know why God even wrote the Old Testament. Da, 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 da. It's like, well, that it teaches you how God thinks about redemption. But when God, it isn't what God said that's bread to you, it's what God's saying. And, um, and, you know, as an example, God told Abraham, this is in Genesis um, chapter 22, take Isaac to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him. But by the time he got to the top of the mountain, the proceeding word, which was, which was, get it? it which was, take Isaac to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him had become a preceding word. In other words, there was a new word. And the word was, don't sacrifice Isaac. I have provided a sacrifice. I, I wonder how many of us, on a practical sense, have sacrificed our dreams because we listened to God, went to do what He said, and on the way there, stopped listening. I, I wonder how often we realize that God's more interested in relationship than... Well, I won't say it that way. That, that sounds terrible. I'm thinking of a new way to phrase it. <laughs> Sometimes we're, we think like slaves oh. instead of like friends. Oh. And so we make one connection with God. God says, go sacrifice Isaac. And we don't realize sometimes that God... Sometimes when God prophesies to us, He's more concerned about testing our heart than he is about determining our destiny I don't know if you got that um, let me back up and say it this way I'm concerned um, and have watched the prophetic movement take on this law like relationship with Jesus when God spoke to Moses in Exodus 32 and he said listen these people this Moses is up on the mountain God looks down he sees the people are building an altar 
remember the calf, golden calf, and he, and he says to Moses, go down at once for these people whom you've led out of Egypt. These are a stubborn, stiff-necked people, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill these people, and I'm going to create a new nation with you. And Moses says to God, God, these are your people whom you led out of Egypt. Remember the bush, not George. Remember the bush? I was minding my own business, and the bush talked to me. And a fire, fire by a bush would be really nice right now. And, and the bush talked to me, and the bush said, I've seen the oppression of my people. Do you remember that, God? Remember, these are your people whom you led out of Egypt, and you said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would give them a promised land. And if you don't give them a promised land, then the Egyptians are going to say, you led them out here to kill them. And then the most powerful verse in the book of Exodus, in my opinion, and God changed his mind. God, God, this, I don't even know how you work sovereignty and, you, you know, free will into the Bible. I don't know how you do this. I mean, I actually don't know how you do. But here's the God who knows everything, and, 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 he, he, and he predetermined, you know, from one perspective, he was sovereignly predetermined everything would happen, and Moses said, God, that's a bad plan. And God goes, okay, well, sure glad you're around, Moses. And, and it tells me something, uh, tells me lots of things about God. But, but did you understand that when God talks to you, he's prophesying to you, right? And God says, this is what I'm going to do. And Moses says, that's a bad plan. I, I love the next chapter because there wasn't chapters when he wrote it. The 33rd chapter, God comes back and he goes, listen, I checked it out. I looked it up. You're right. I did say I would give this people a promised land, but I never said I'd go with them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send an angel. Because if I go, I might get angry and kill him on the way. And Moses says to God, God, you know what makes, you, makes us different from all, every other nation? Your presence. And then he basically said this to God. If you're not going, we're not going. I'd rather be with you in the wilderness than be with an angel in the promised land. I'm not sure most charismatics would know the difference. I think most charismatics, as long as they're having signs and wonders and miracles, wouldn't even realize it's just an angel and God isn't even with them. And, God, and Moses says to God, if you are not going, I am not going, and neither are these people, because you are the difference between us and every other nation. And God goes, okay, I'll go with you. And I love this because it tells me that sometimes, everybody says sometimes, Sometimes when God's prophesying to us, he's more concerned about our character than he is about our destiny. Sometimes when God prophesies to us, he's testing our heart rather than determining our destiny. And then God, and then God says to Moses, so Moses says, you can't do that, you know, you need to stay with us. You know, we'll stay here if you don't want to go. And God says, okay, I'm going. And I think when God said... I, you know, get back, I'm going to make you a nation. Most of us would be like, oh, I'd be awesome. I'd love to be king of the world. I can't believe how many people prophesy stuff. You know, it's like, God's going to destroy San Francisco. And people are like, oh, go God. God goes, I haven't found me a leader. And some people are so convinced, like, God spoke to me. Well, God spoke to Moses and said, I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses said, that's a bad plan. And God said, I got me a leader. 
God said to, listen, you want to, listen, this is off subject, but it's real, so good. God said to David, I'm going to give Saul into your hands, and you can do to him whatever you wish. Did you get it? That's the prophetic word of David. I'm going to give Saul into your hands, and you can do to him whatever you wish. Saul goes into a cave to go to the bathroom. His mighty men are in the cave with him, with David. Saul doesn't know David's in the cave. David's way back in the cave. And Saul's, one of Saul's mighty men whispers to David, this is that. This is the word of the Lord. Remember that word you got? I'm going to give your enemy into your hand and you can do whatever you wish. He just did it. And it says, with great, with great restraint, David refused to let his men kill Saul and said, far be it from me, that I should destroy God's anointed. Three chapters later, you, and you know that part of the story, Saul, when David, when Saul comes out of the cave, David waits till there's some distance between them, and he says, Saul, I cut off your garment. Look at your garment. You see that? I have it right here. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul goes on to say, you're a better man than me. You're a righteous man. You deserve the kingship. But then, a few months later, he's insane again. He's chasing David around a mountain. And it says this, A deep sleep from the Lord fell upon Saul and all the armies of Israel. And David says to his mighty men, Anybody want to go down? Anyone want to go down and see Saul? Abishi says, I'll go with you. One of the mighty men. Abishi goes down and all of the armies of Israel are slain in the spirit literally slain in the spirit says and they were asleep by God and Abishai says repeats the prophetic word this is what God said to you I'm going to give your enemies into your hand now he's got a prophetic word and he has a sign from God they're all the enemies are asleep by God in other words they can't wake up and Abishai says let me take the sword and I'll thrust it to his head and David looks at him and goes, just once. And David said, far from, be it from me that I should touch God's anointed. God said, do, what do whatever you want to your enemy. Now I don't want to touch him. Okay, I'll put him to sleep. Now do whatever you want. I won't touch him. God goes, now I got a man after my heart. Now I got a man after my heart. We have to get out of this robotic relationship with God. We have to come into friendship. It's like, well, God said this. Okay, he said that, but what did he mean? <laughs> what did he mean? And I tell our, team, our, our students, they've heard me say this many times. If God says, I'm going to destroy Redding, don't run from Redding, argue with God. There are times when he invites us into arguing with God. Abraham, God says to Abraham, Genesis 18, I, listen, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then he tells them that he's going to destroy Sodom. What does Abraham do? Does what, what any good Jewish man would do. Negotiates with God. <laughs> negotiates with God are you with me 
He argues with God honorably. He says, oh God, don't get mad. (laughs) If there's 50, if the 50 are lacking five, that's great Jewish negotiation. If the 50 are lacking five, da-da-da, gets God down to 10. God says, if you can find 10 righteous people in Sodom, you know Sodom? Sodom's like famous for immorality. If you could find five righteous people, I will spare Sodom. How many of you know that God doesn't destroy cities because they're wicked? He destroys them because he can't find enough righteous. You are salt and light. What is salt? Preservative. God's going to destroy such and such a place because they're wicked. No, no. The only, way, only reason God would destroy anything is because there's not enough righteous. And it only takes ten. If it only takes ten to preserve Sodom, what would it take to preserve your city? And we got Bill and me in my city. <laughs> okay, we got Kathy and Benny, that's real. <laughs> I had this dream, I've told this dream many times, but it's, it's such a, for me, it's such a, a foundation it was such a foundational experience in my life. I had this dream, and in this dream, I saw words. Words going across a, um, kind of like a CNN, you know, ticker tape. And there were words like, God, powerful, Jesus, holy, you know, were like one word, but they were going across the screen. And in the dream, God said to me, well, this voice actually, which I assumed to be God, said, I'm giving you a new operating system. And when he said, I'm giving you a new operating system, instead of the words going across the screen, I know this is kind of weird, like, it wasn't exactly like this either, but it's the closest I could come to describing it. Instead of the words going across the screen in like a ticker tape, they begin to fall like rain. Mm, This is the part that's hard to describe, because there's nothing on earth I've ever seen like this. But they were falling like rain, and they were alive. The words were alive. And they were different sizes. It, it, you know in dreams, like you remember certain things about a dream? In the dream, it was very significant to me when I woke up, that what I remembered, that the words were different sizes. And they were, hmm, the closest thing I can say is like they were like three-dimensional, and they were living. They were like living and breathing. It's, it's, that isn't exactly right, but that's as close as I could come to explaining what, what it was like. You know, dreams don't live in the laws of physics. I can fly in a dream. Have you ever flown in a dream? And so, and so anyway, in the dream, in the dream, the words were different sizes, and, and I would, in the dream, I would breathe in the word. So like, I would breathe in, I remember this one specifically, I saw the word courageous. And in the dream, I breathe in, I would breathe in the word, when I would breathe in, the word courageous would, in the dream, would come into me, and suddenly I would be a courageous man. And I realized that every word was an imitation to an experience. And I woke up from the dream, and the Lord said to me, I'm about to release revelation on this generation. I'm about to release revelation on this generation 
that's been held in the vaults of heaven for the eons of ages. Mysteries and secrets that I've never told anyone for 10 billion years. Even the angels long to look at the revelation that I'm about to release on this generation. That's what he said to me. But he said to me, if I release this revelation on the old wineskin, it will break the wineskin. And then he said to me, truth has order. Follow me for a second. He said, truth has order. And he took me to Isaiah, I think it's verse chapter 28, I'll look it up in a minute. He said, where Isaiah says, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And I began to realize that not all truth is created equal. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Remember he said to the Pharisees, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tithe, mint, cumin, and deal, which is like um, plants from your garden, but you have, neg- you have neg- negated the weightier things of the law, which are truth and justice. And then he says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, he's saying, you tithe from your garden. That's fine. I don't want you to stop doing that. These things you should have done. You should still be doing that. But you've neglected the weightier things of the law with our truth, mercy, and justice. Follow me. He says, these things are true. You did these well. But these have weight, more weight. In my dream, they were bigger. If I could give you a picture, like faith, hope, and love, if you looked at, if I could show you, uh, try to get you to visualize. Faith, hope, love. Like in my dream. It, it was God saying, some things are true, but I whisper them. Other things are true, and I talk about them. And other things are true, and I shout them. When you shout things, I'm whispering. It's a perversion. Perversion means the wrong version. And oftentimes, cults are truth out of order. You listen to, how many have ever run into somebody who's in a cult? And you, and you walk away and you're like, that's really weird. They believe what I believe. <laughs> it freaks you out. They use the same scriptures you use. Some of them read the same Bible you read. And you walk away and you're like, I think I'm a cultist. And you realize, actually, what's happened is, is that they found some, mind, you know, some scriptures. Some, it's there. It's really there. And they built a whole doctrine on a verse that no other apostle even remembered (laughs) you know like Peter talking about no Paul I'm sorry Paul talking about 2 Corinthians baptizing the dead and they have genealogies of finding who your ancestors were so you could get baptized for your dead great 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 grandfather because Paul said something about baptizing for the dead. And you're like, wait a second, how about the rest of the scripture that talks about like you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And it's like, you can't deny that verses in the Bible. In fact, you probably don't even know what it means. 
So how do you argue about something you don't know what it means? Because I know what this means. Are you with me at all? And so I'm saying what happens is that we, we, we emphasize, sometimes we emphasize things, we're shouting things that God is whispering. Are they true? Yes, but they're not as weighty. What happens when you emphasize friendship over fatherhood with your son or daughter? You end up with spoiled brat kids. Do you want to be a friend of your children? Sure, but I have to be a father first. What happens if you, you take mutual submission? How about this, ladies? I'll just finish a woman's book. Why is it that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, submit to one another in the fear of Christ? Next verse, wives submit to your husbands. Next verse, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. And then the next three lines of instruction are all to husbands about how to die. Why is it that husbands are on a death march and wives are on a, have to honor their husbands and we emphasize the wife's submission and not the death march? Do you know a wife was never told? There's no verse in the Bible that says, Wives, lay down your lives for your husbands. Only the husband. The husband's supposed to die for the wife, the wife's supposed to honor him, and we tell wives, submit, 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 and we don't tell husbands, how come you're not dead? (laughs) And I'm trying to tell you, when you put wives submit to your husbands above husbands love your wives, that's a perversion. And you ended up with Tarzan in the jungle terrorizing the family and, and, you, and, you, and pastors are saying, you need to submit to your crazy husband. And I'm saying, Tarzan needs to stay in the jungle and talk to the gorillas until he's fun to be with. That's a perversion. You have the wrong version. You cannot, listen, what's greater, submission or love? I can tell you what's greater, love. And when you have people trying to submit to people that aren't loving them and are brutalizing them and are terrorizing the family, and I grew up in a home like that, and then they go see their pastor and their pastor says, stay in that dangerous situation, I think he needs his head checked. And by the way, I am not advocating divorce. I'm advocating Tarzan stays in the jungle as long as he wants to act like an animal. And he can be trained with the gorillas. There's my take on marriage. And I'm saying, do I believe in in mutual submission? I do. I absolutely do. Do I believe in wives honoring their husbands? Absolutely. Absolutely I do. But what happens when you reverse, when when you don't emphasize love first? Do you get this? Love first. What happens when you don't emphasize love first? Love foremost. You create a perversion that is worse than... I mean, there are people... Oh, man. Don't say that. Let's move on. No, I'm not going to bring it. I feel a check from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Don't say it. Holy Spirit's on the front row. Do not say it.
I'm just, I will say this, there's some terrible things going on in the name of God that are being propagated behind closed doors in counseling sessions by pastors that need their head checked. I'll tell you that. A marriage is not two people in, locked up in a house together. That's not a marriage. And we need healthy marriages. But it happens as we teach people the skills of marriage and we teach people truth in order. That's what we need. And so, yes, we need women who can be honorable as men should. But, yes, we need men to stop being selfish. I will say this part. This is, this is passionate to me. Why is it, where do we get the idea that when a woman gets married, she lays down all of her ambitions to follow her husband? Where, where do we get that idea? Like, if the man's supposed to die and the woman's supposed to submit, wouldn't it be the man who lays down his ambitions to make sure his wife's dreams come true? I understand it's mutual, but if you're going to yell something, wouldn't you yell, hey, Joe, when you get married, you better make sure your wife's dreams come true because you're supposed to be dead. She's the only one living. And I don't know why we do this, but it's like, I'm following my husband because he has a vision. No, you're following your husband because he's selfish and hasn't figured out how to die. Where do we get this? Like, I'm following my husband. He has the career and I'm following him. I'm like, really? You're following a dead guy. He's supposed to lay down his life to make sure that you come into your destiny. And it's in him helping you come into your destiny that he gets to find his. But he doesn't get to find his till he's helping you find yours. It's such a weird, perverted system. It is so man-world-dominated thinking. We even think God is a he. I propose to you that God isn't even human. And that he made, and I said this last night, that he made man in his, in his image, male and female, he made them. It takes a man and a woman to actually be the image of God. You can tell I just spent 400 hours researching, writing a woman's book on empowering women. Some lady wrote me yesterday on Facebook and she said, did you consult any women about writing a woman's book? Heck no! Women don't know anything about being women. Of course I did! What a stupid question. I don't know what she was implying like, well, what quality, qualifications do you have writing a woman's book? I'm writing a book on empowering women, not being one. I still haven't figured out this one. I've been with her for like 40 years. I'm moving on from the women thing. John 1. What am I, how am I doing for time? Okay, I got the time. John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Everybody say grace and truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and through theologians it became just words again. Hebrews says this, for the word of God is living, everybody say living, and active, everybody say active, and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In Acts chapter 7 verse 38 it says that the congregation that was in the wilderness was receiving the living oracles of God. Everybody say living oracles. In Matthew 24, 35, it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. John 5, 39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And yet they testify of me, and you're unwilling to come to me to have life. I'd like to propose to you that you could destroy every Bible that's ever been written on iPad, ebook everything and you wouldn't destroy the word of God because the word of God was before the book was ever written I believe that this is the Bible the inherent word of God I believe this I read it every day but I believe that you can get this and not get the word of God because the word of God is living (laughs) the word of God is living and active it's living oracles it's the word that became flesh When, um, when I first came to Bethel, one of my jobs was to pick up the conference speakers. But I didn't know any of the conference speakers at the time. So they would take the brochure out, like we have the brochure here, and they would circle the person I was supposed to pick up. Like I remember the first person I ever picked up was Bobby Connors. Actually, the first person I ever picked up was Bob Jones, which was an experience. <laughs> and I had never met Bob Jones before, but they circled in... Um, they, they circled in... in you know, in ink, okay, this is Bob Jones. This is five people on our conference list, but this is the one you're picking up. I put the conference brochure on my front seat. I didn't have Bob Jones in the front seat. I had a picture of Bob Jones on the front seat so that when I saw him, I'll pick him up. There's a lot of people carrying around a picture, but don't ever have an experience. remember in the dream the word was living and every word was an invitation to an experience there's a lot of people running around like if you base your relationship with God on an experience you can be deceived that is absolutely true but if you read this book and you don't have an experience with God you're already deceived The goal of the Bible is not to know the Bible, contrary to popular opinion. The goal of the Bible is to get to know the author. It's like like reading the the owner's manual of your car, and you're like reading it, and you're like, memorize it, but you can't drive a dang car. It's like, what the heck? The goal of the owner's manual is to operate the car. You know, I... Memorize the owner's manual. What, do you know how to do anything in your car? No. You missed the point. 
You missed the point. Like, the goal of the book, it's, it's, it's like, I've memorized the whole Bible. Unimpressive. If memorizing the Bible got you a relationship with God, Pharisees would have rocked. Here's the guy who they've been reading about for thousands of years, standing right in front of them. The Word that became flesh. They knew the Word, but when it became flesh, they couldn't process that this was Him. So I believe in reading the Bible every day. I do. But you need the Holy Spirit to actually guide you through the book. (laughs) That's a good word right there. I'm right about that. <laughs> I have people all the time tell me they believe the Bible on Facebook. This, how many of you have Facebook or Twitter? It's very interesting what people will say behind a curtain. They are the boldest people. They will say the rudest things. They will judge a person's heart who they have never met. Only because they disagree. And I got to be kind of, like, I like to mess with them now. See, (laughs) I figured out there's three kinds of people on Facebook. I like Facebook. There's agreeers. Agreeers. They agree with anything you say. Seriously. They say, you know, if you said, you know... An angel told me Buddha's God. They'd be like, oh. <laughs> you could totally start your own cult on Facebook. Some people like, I'm exaggerating to be funny. But there's the agreeers. There's the disagreeers. Right? They kind of think about what you say and they, sometimes they agree with you, sometimes they don't. And then there's the disagreeable. The disagreeable See, disagreeable people have nothing to do with an opinion. It has everything to do with an attitude. And disagreeable people, it doesn't matter what you say. If you say, it's warm outside, they say, oh, you know, in the Arctic. (laughs) Seriously, if you said, I've done this on purpose just to mess with them. I go, God loves everybody. The disagreeable, they write this verse. You already figured it out, right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. They actually wrote that when I said, I just wrote, I wrote, I said, today I'm going to post something we can all agree with. God loves everybody. Period. Seven posts down. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I I knew they were going to do it. I did it on purpose. And then what happens is what's really funny is when you get the disagreeables, when you get two disagreeables disagreeing with each other. It is entertainment. It's entertainment. You have to get on my Facebook and watch it. It is so funny. Like, the disagreeables, they get their trucks and they run them into each other. And so sometimes I just put stuff up there just to get people entertained. I'm like, this will be good. If you write, women should be powerful. Oh, ho, ho, ho. It is so funny because you have your disagreeers and your disagreeables. And then you have the mercy givers who, like, they just don't even care who's right. They just want everybody to get along. Did you have that too? They're like, oh, people, Jesus said, kumbaya, Lord, kumbaya. 
If you don't agree with the disagreeables, not the disagreeers, if you don't agree with the disagreeables, you are a cult leader, a false prophet, a false teacher, and you're leading the masses to hell. Now I've memorized that because they've told me that so many times. If you don't agree with the disagreeables, you are not only wrong, you are the devil personified in flesh. I'm serious. So you're laughing because you know it's true. Like, they don't know how to say, you know, brother, I don't disagree. I disagree with that, and I would see that differently. They're like, you, Jesus talked about you. There shall be false prophets and false teachers. They shall lead many astray. I mean, you can't. I can't even tell you how many times they write that verse to me. They blame me for my son's divorce. I'm dead serious. And the fruit of it is your son had a divorce. I'm like, oh, I see. Like, if you serve God, everything will go well for you. That's totally in the Bible. Absolutely, you will have no problems in your life. You don't even want to know what I wrote him. I wanted to just ban him, but then I wanted to just punish him first. Which validated that I am the Antichrist. Do you know that almost all truth, everybody say almost, almost all truth is held in tension. And I teach, in fact, our second year students, I just went through a, a, a couple hour teaching with them in the last couple weeks, a couple weeks ago, that when you are preaching or counseling, you need to know what the other side of what you're teaching is. I'm not saying you should teach it together because when you teach both sides at the same time, people don't know what to do. <laughs> but anytime you share something, there's another side to it in the Bible. Like the Bible's written in a paradox on purpose. I'll give you a few. You want a few? How about this one? Jesus, it says, Matthew 4 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil okay who led jesus into the wilderness the spirit what did he lead him there specifically for to be tempted by the devil Hmm. matthew 6 what did jesus say pray that you would not be led into temptation that's funny because it was the spirit of god who led jesus into temptation on purpose that's in chapter 4 in chapter 6 he told you told us to pray pray father who's in heaven hallowed be your name kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is Lead us not into temptation. Well, maybe he got that after he was. <laughs> I don't know if you're hearing what I'm saying, but how about this one? Paul writes this in Galatians 5. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ is no benefit to you. Did you get that? Behold, I, Paul, say this. If you receive circumcision, Christ is no benefit to you. Acts 16.1, Paul circumcises Timothy. 
If I was Timothy, and Timothy's 32. We're not talking about like little children eight days after birth. You can imagine Paul's like, come here, I want to make a point. Paul writes to, to, to the Galatians and he says, if you, receive, if you receive circumcision, Christ is no benefit to you. Timothy, come here, I need to circumcise you. What a second, Paul! <laughs> Paul, read your own letter! <laughs> Timothy, let's go in the bathroom here, we've got to have a conversation. Which is it? Circumcision or not? I'll give you a couple more. How about this one? I like this one. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How many believe that? The disagreeable don't. (laughs) Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, the word of God, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many has been assigned, no, as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. Did you get that? Acts 2.21, it shall come about that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard the word of the Lord, they rejoiced, and as many as were appointed to life, believed. Some weren't appointed to life? I would that all would come to salvation. Only some are appointed to life. Well, that's confusing. I know. What's the answer? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'll give you my, my, my last favorite one and then totally confuse you. Jesus said, Matthew 24. In the last days, nation will rise up against nation and people against people and there will be wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms against kingdoms in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Matthew 24, 7. Isaiah chapter 2. Now, when did Jesus say that would happen? In the last days. In the last days, what would there be? There would be wars and rumors of wars. Kingdoms rise up against kingdoms, nations against nations. Got it? When? Last days. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised, uh, established as chief of the mountains, and be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Verse 4. And Jesus will judge between nations and render decisions between many people. And they will, never, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. When is that? It will come about in the last days. <laughs> and what, what does it say will happen? Nation will not rise up against nation. Kingdom will not rise up against kingdom. They'll beat their spears into parting hooks, and their s- swords into plowshares, and never again will they train for war. When will that happen? In the millennium. No, no, it says in the last days. Well, Jesus said in the last days there'll be wars and rumors of wars and nations will rise up against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. But Isaiah said in the last days 
there wouldn't be any war. There'd be peace. Which is right. I don't know. And I can give you 500 of those. I started making lists of them. I believe in the Bible. Yeah, so do I. But you know what? Without the Holy Spirit, you don't know when to apply what verse to when. Do you know, I'm just finished my woman's book. Do you know that Paul wrote, um, he wrote 13 letters, 14 if you count Hebrews as Paul's. Wrote 13 letters to nine locations. In three locations, he, he restricted women. In three locations. In six locations, he empowered them. You know that? He writes to Timothy and says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority. In the book of Acts, it says, Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos the word more effectively, efficiently, or accurately, depending on how you want to translate the word. Paul acknowledges a female apostle and four prophetesses. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying that if you don't know the Holy Spirit, you'll take one word and apply it universally to everybody and it won't be redemptive. But you don't know when to apply what. See, what we do is we apply the scriptures we like to people we like and apply other scriptures we don't like to people we don't like and don't realize that actually the Bible is intentionally written so that you won't know what to do without having a relationship with God. And I guarantee you, if you want to learn a lesson, just write one side of this. Oh, you want to start a war? Just write. And Jesus was led into temptation by the Holy Spirit, led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And then write just one little commentary. Sometimes the Lord leads us into temptation. (laughs) You want to start a war? I know, I do it sometimes just to be funny. Just to watch the disagreeable. You are the Antichrist. I used the Bible. And what I'm getting at is this, is that people... See, a lot of people have a relationship with the Bible. They just don't have a relationship with God. Bill said this, he said, most perversion comes from, from people who, don't, who aren't in love interpreting the Bible. Oh. See, you have to step back and ask yourself, why did Jesus come? Let's just back up for a second. And I'm gonna, I want you to put on your glasses, your 3D glasses. You have to ask, why did Jesus come? I would propose to you that the whole Old Testament was written to teach us we needed a Savior. And the New Testament was to teach us that we have one. And that the object of a Savior is to save us. That's why he's called a Savior. And that he wants to save us from sin, death, hell, and the grave. And that he came to give us abundant life. And the gospel means good news. 
And therefore, everything Jesus did was done redemptively. If you put on your redemptive glasses, you're going to read the Bible in a way that leads to redemption. If you put on your judgment glasses, you're going to see the same accident in a totally different way. Are you following me? And so here's where I'm going. If you quote something positive about eschatology, you just, you get every Bible teacher in my world will say something negative. If you quote something negative about eschatology, all my friends will correct me. They're like, that's not what you've been teaching us. And the truth is, is that you can find both of those in the Word. And you have to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit to know when to whisper and when to shout. When somebody comes in my office and they've been divorced, I don't take the Bible out and talk to them about how Jesus hates divorce. You know why? They're already divorced. (laughs) There's no redemptive value in making them feel bad about a situation that already is past. Are you following me? There's, there's, there's 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 nothing redemptive about reminding people of their failure or the failure of their spouse, or however it worked out. I'm not blaming anybody. But when a couple comes in my office and they want to get divorced, I talk to them about how Jesus hates divorce. When a couple's been divorced for five years and they have three kids and they're in my office, or one of them is in my office feeling terrible about their divorce, I say, divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Jesus forgives you. It's time for you to go on. It doesn't disqualify you from loving God, knowing God, and, and being just... Listen, listen. if God can use a murderer to write 13 books of the Bible, He can use you. Paul Manwaring worked in a prison for years, and he said one of his favorite things to do was to take a really cheap, inexpensive Bible, like a, one of those dollar Bibles, and, and he'd get in front of his prisoners, and he'd rip out every book of the Bible that was written by a murderer there goes all the books of Moses <laughs> goes everything written by David all the Psalms gone Solomon I take out all Solomon Solomon killed a bunch of people uh, most of the New Testament gets ripped out all of Paul's books. And then what's left from people, here's the only books left of people who didn't murder somebody. It's a great example. I'm sitting with someone who's divorced and feels totally disqualified. Like, I'll never ever be able to do anything in God again. It's not the time to talk to them about how God hates divorce. It's a time to talk about how God can redeem anyone. How God can restore anyone. How, God, how, how that's not unforgivable. And how God can completely restore you to full ministry. 
Now, you're sitting in my office and you're thinking about getting a divorce. Guess what? I'm going to come over here and talk to you about a totally different thing. Do you realize the pain that you could cause? Da, da, da. Do you realize how important you made a covenant? You know a covenant's forever. And I began to talk to them about the other side of divorce. Both are true. But listen, it's redemptive here and it's redemptive there. But when I reverse those, it's unredemptive. There's no sense to talking to somebody who's failed about their failure when they've already repented. Are you with me? I'm just saying, like, this is a sword. You can cut people's ears off with it, or you can operate and do heart surgery. But when you don't know the author of this book, or you are dedicated to defending the law, and your job is to find anyone who disagrees with the Bible, which is every Christian, (laughs) in different situations. They don't disagree with the Bible. I'm being funny. I'm saying nobody understands completely this book without the Holy Spirit. And so when people say, I believe in the Bible. You know, I've been posting stuff about women for about three months just to get people stirred up. And the disagreeables, like, you let women teach. And I write back, do you let women speak in church? Oh, yes, well, of course. Why do you let women speak in church? Paul said, I don't. Women should be silent in church. Are your women silent in church? When they walk through the door, do you muzzle them? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. That was a cultural thing. Oh, that's a cultural thing. But when Paul said women can't speak and then exercise, teach or exercise authority, that's not a cultural thing, even though the author wrote both books. That's interesting that one you think's ridiculous and shouldn't be applied anymore, but the other you think's okay. That's funny that you get permission to use two different ways of viewing the same author's stuff. And you're saying it's not your opinion. Very interesting. But I am a heretic because I say that has context. And that has context. And that has context. And because I don't agree that you're only one of your verses has context, but the other is to be applied universally, because I don't agree with that, I'm a heretic and you're right. Isn't it interesting when we read a letter written to a church and we apply it like the book of Leviticus who was written to a nation? How many know you can't read the epistles like you read the book of Leviticus? Because Leviticus was written to be the laws of a nation, but but Timothy was written to a person about what to do about a situation. When you universally apply something, it should dawn on you that when you reduce people to make the word come to life, when you reduce people to protect the word, when you take the word of God, listen, here's a great test, great acid test. If you apply the word of God to somebody and it is unredemptive and reduces them and makes them smaller and makes them less powerful, I think you need to think through that. 
And so here we go. You know, we're on this spirit journey, and we want it to be word and spirit. I don't want my students to not know the Bible. I don't. And I, I, want, I want great preachers to come out of our movement. And I, and I want them, when they're preaching this, I want them to know that there's that. Even though they're preaching this, I want them to know there's that. Because if you don't know there's that, you don't understand the context. First of all, if you don't know there's that, you don't know there is a context. Because you think there's only one way to see the Bible. And so I think some of the greatest revivalists, some of the greatest theologians, and I say the word theologian in a really positive way now, the greatest revelatory theologians are going to come out of this movement because the Holy Spirit is going to teach us. And I believe, this is, I've never said this before, never even believed it before. No, I've never said it, I've never thought it before. I did believe it, I never thought this before. I believe Holy Spirit's going to teach us the book of Revelation in the next 10 years. I, I mean, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to teach us the book of Revelation. And it's going to be the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. And you're going to see things in there you never saw before. I could go on and on. Why don't you stand and just want to pray for you? It's so important that we know the author of the book. Do you know the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon, right? When he had a relationship with God. Do you know that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon when he lost relationship with God? Do you know the book of Ecclesiastes wasn't written to be true? The book of Ecclesiastes was written to show you what happens when the wisest man in the world loses a relationship with God. And he begins to say, everything's vanity. You know the word vanity there? Look it up in the Hebrew. It means meaningless. And he goes on to say, life has no meaning. And he says things like, money is the answer to all things. And then he tells you things like, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. And by the way, animals and people, they all go to the same place. He says that in Ecclesiastes. Is it true? No. But it's what happens when a wisest man in the world loses a relationship with God. You know what's strange about Ecclesiastes? A third of the book is true. What third? Ha ah, You have to have a relationship with God. No. You have to have a relationship with God to know. Because if you read Ecclesiastes like you read Proverbs, you'll end up not trying to be too righteous or be too wicked or thinking that the animals go the same place you go. And that's not true. Because you're the only one made in the image and likeness of God. And money is not the answer to everything. Jesus is the answer to everything. But Solomon forgot that when he followed foreign wives and believed in idols. So Holy Spirit, I pray right now that in this great move of God that you've placed us in the middle of and however we got here, we don't even know. But we want you to be our tour guide. We want to understand the Word of God. We want to apply it. We want it to be a foundation for everything we believe. We want, to, we want to think out of it. And not only that, but we want to be, not just have a message, we want to be the message. We want to be the Word of God that became flesh and dwelled among people. We want to be the walking, living Word of God. 
not pounding people with the Bible, but revealing truth. We want to be able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Lord, I just pray for, for such a celestial unity between you, Jesus, Holy Spirit, and us, that we become an inseparable union. And Father, I thank you for giving us the Bible, the love letter, a love letter to us to teach us how to have a relationship with you. I pray today that we'd walk out of here not confused, but knowing that we need the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. Amen. Amen. Amen.